If you're new to Destiny, just want to say welcome and thank you for being here today. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. And uh, at Destiny, we believe that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Amen? And that you are not an accident, but that you're created by God on purpose, with value, as an image bearer of Him. And so thank you for being here today. My name is Matt Bell. I'm the pastor here and just want to welcome you. Thank you, Grace. I can always count on you to give me a hand for being the pastor. Um, if you would, open with me in your Bibles uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 6 and uh, Genesis chapter 1 today. We're going to spend some time in God's Word. We're continuing a series that we started last week called Seek First. Can you say Seek First? We're continuing uh, this series that we started on what Jesus taught on how to live, on how we as his people are to live in the world that he created. And I want to I jump right in this morning back to the text that we looked at last week. I want to recap a little bit for us so we're on the same page. And then this morning what we're going to be looking at is how we can seek first the kingdom of God in our family life, in our families, and specifically in our marriages. And if you're not married here today, you're still gonna learn about marriage today, okay? And this is something that's very important in the day and age in which we live, that we have a biblical understanding, God's idea for marriage. And so even if you're not married today, maybe one day you will be married, or maybe you are raising some kids who will be married. And so it's very important that we're able to teach and articulate and understand God's plan for marriage. But I wanna, I wanna look at our theme verse again this morning, and that's Matthew chapter six. And I wanna start in verse 31 today. Jesus says, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, everybody say but. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would speak to us today. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from your word. Lord, we believe that uh, the Bible, the, the 66 books contained in here, that, Lord, that these are not man's words, but these are your words to us, your people. So, Lord, help us to receive them today. Uh, with gladness, let us receive your instruction on, on how we are to live the life that you have given us, Lord, for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What you have here is Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator God who created everything. What you have is God telling us how we are to live our lives. This is the creator stepping into his creation and saying, this is how you are to live the life I have given you. 
He says, we as his people should not live our lives as the Gentiles, he says. That's, a, that's another way of saying the world, that we're no longer part of the world. We're part of God's covenant people, God's family, and that we as God's people should live our lives differently than the world, than people who do not belong to God, than people who are not part of God's family. And he says, look, the people of the world, they're searching after all of these things, material wealth, possessions, what they're wearing, what they're eating, where they're going to sleep. They're, they're just worried only about the material. Jesus says, God knows you need those things. He owns everything. He can take care of you. But we as God's people, we need to be seeking after something else. He says it's the kingdom of God. And so what we have here is the author of life telling us how to live. So the kingdom of God, I gave you the definition for it last week. Do you remember what it is? Well, good thing I brought you a recap this morning. Three parts to the kingdom of God. First is it is God's people. The kingdom is made up of God's people. How many of you are a part of God's people today? Amen. There's only one way to be a part of God's people, to be a part of God's family. It is through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross paid the price for sin and for death and, and died for us so that we could have our sins forgiven. On the third day, he rose again so that we could have new life, eternal life, that we would not be spiritually dead, but that we could be spiritually alive, reborn. Now we are God's people. If you put your faith in Christ today, you are part of God's covenant family. So the first part of the kingdom of God is God's people. The second part is that God's people live in God's presence, experiencing the presence of God. When we gathered here today for worship, I trust that you felt the presence of God in this place. Amen. In, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we see that God's presence filled a building. It was called the temple. But now in the New Covenant, through Christ, God was doing something new. And the book of Hebrews tells us God is doing something better. And that the, the, the Spirit of God, the presence of God, no longer resides in a building called the temple. Now God's Spirit lives in his people. And so Paul writes and says that, that, that your bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so everywhere we go, we carry the presence of God with us. Wherever you are, you are a, an ambassador for the kingdom, carrying God's presence and then the third piece is that God's people, filled with his spirit, carrying his presence, that we live under the king's rule, who is God, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. So it is the people of God, filled with the spirit of God, living under the word of God, experiencing the blessing of God. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is all about the king. And we are now his people. Now there's another kingdom out there. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the kingdom of the world. 
It can be called the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. I don't want to be a part of any of that. But we are all born because of sin into that kingdom. We are trained how to live in that kingdom. We're taught the the way that the kingdom of this world works. And that is what we are indoctrinated with, even from a young child. And because of sin, the, the values of the kingdom of the world, they're actually written on our hearts, which is not a good thing. And so when we come now to Christ and faith in Christ, we're now made alive through the Spirit of God. We must retrain our minds. We must reprogram our computer up here with not the programming of the world system, but the kingdom of God. And we find that, of course, in God's word. And as we read God's word, what we find is that God's kingdom is very different from the kingdom of the world. That God's people should live differently than the people of the world's kingdom. That we live under God's rule and we experience God's blessing. And so as God's people, we are submitted to his word alone, above all else, above everything else. And what we see is that God's kingdom is is so different from the kingdom of the world. And because naturally we are oriented to, to think as a way of the kingdom of the world thinks, when we look at God's word and, and as we study about God's kingdom, what we think sometimes is that God's kingdom is upside down. The reason we think God's kingdom is upside down is because actually we're upside down. God's kingdom is actually right side up. God's kingdom is the way it should be. But as we come to it, as we're retraining our mind, that's why the Bible says that our minds should be washed with the word of God, that we have to be retrained. And sometimes it looks like God's ways and his kingdom is upside down. But to a man who's being held upside down by his ankles, the world looks upside down. And that's our position. And so as we come to the word of God, it's God putting us right side up. Amen. You see, kingdom living is opposite to living according to our own world's culture. It's living a different life according to the the culture of our world, which is fallen and broken and sinful and ultimately leads to pain and hardship and even death. And so we have a choice. We can either live culture up, which says, this is my culture and how I wanna live, and God, you are to bless this, or we can live kingdom down, which is to say, God, show me how to live my life according to your word. And that where my culture in God's kingdom don't agree, I submit my culture to the kingdom of God. I, I, I live under God's rule and God's reign, and I experience God's blessing. And so as God's people, what, what we're called to is to a, a radical departure 
from the, the culture of this world. The culture of this world is self-centered, says it's all about me, my life is all about me, or uh, you, you, know, you would think it's all about you, that, that you know, the, the whole universe rotates around you know, these two feet right here, and it's all about me and my life and what I want and my plans and, and my desires and the things that I want to do and I want to express and, and to follow my own heart. And when we come to God's kingdom, it's not about me, it's about the king. And so it's, it's a life, Jesus calls us to live a life radically separating ourselves from a self-centered life and to live a God-centered life. That everything in our life doesn't orbit around us, but it orbits around God and his kingdom at the center. And that's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. So, kingdom living, what kingdom living produces, seeking God's kingdom in every area of life, it produces kingdom results. And the Apostle Paul, he tells us what the kingdom results is. He says, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So how many of you would like to have some righteousness in your life and some peace, oh, some peace in your life and joy and the love of God and the Spirit of God? This is what the results of living a kingdom life produces in our lives in every area of life. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about, that's my introduction this morning on the kingdom of God. That's my little recap. So, so today, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about seeking first the kingdom in our family's life. Seeking first the kingdom in the life of our family. And specifically, I want to talk about marriage today and the, the, the biblical idea, God's idea for marriage you see, to, to have a kingdom family, God's plan for a kingdom family is that it would start with a kingdom marriage. That's God's design for the family, is that it would start with a marriage. And to understand marriage, really, we have to go back to the beginning of the Bible, and so if you have your Bible this morning, you can open to Genesis chapter 1. If you have a hard time finding it, just close your Bible and open the first page, and you'll find it right there. Um, I, I have several passages that I want to read to you on marriage this morning. And I, I'm going to spend a little bit of time reading these to you. And I could certainly just tell you what's in there and summarize it for you. But I'm going to read them today because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing the word of God. That, that when, when I come and, and, and prepare a, a message, a sermon, I'm, I'm not just trying to put information into your brain. I'm not just trying to give you information transfer. I'm really hoping that God produces something supernatural in your heart and that we believe that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so I'm gonna take some time this morning to read you some excerpts from these passages. I wish I could read you these whole chapters, but unfortunately, um, our culture won't let us do that this morning. And so 
Uh, I'm going to read you some excerpts from Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5. And my hope would be that you, you wouldn't just hear them today in the sermon, but that these would actually be a foundation for your life and that you would go home and, and read these more and study these more. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. To understand marriage, we have to go back to when God created humanity. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man, that's mankind or humanity, in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 31, it says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Genesis chapter 2 drills down a little bit more on this creation account between Adam and Eve and God. And so it says that first God created Adam, and then he created Eve. And so in verse 18 of chapter 2 is the account of God creating Eve. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." This is God's commentary here in 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, skipping way far ahead in the story to Malachi chapter 2, it tells us a little bit about why God created marriage. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15 says, Did not God make them, that's male and female, in marriage, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. In Mark chapter 10, when asked about marriage, this is what Jesus has to say. He hearkens all the way back to when God created man and woman. And he says, from the beginning of creation, this is Mark chapter 10, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And finally, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he says that husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
Skipping down to verse 31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to be diving a little bit more into these passages from the New Testament, but I want to spend some time now looking at Genesis chapter 1 and God's purpose for the marriage and God's purpose for the family. Because if if we're going to seek first God's kingdom in our marriage, we need to have a biblical understanding of what a marriage is. Marriage, as we saw in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, marriage is not man's idea. This is not something that people came up with. This is something that God instituted at the very beginning for humanity. Marriage is not man's idea. Marriage is God's idea. Amen. So if I'm going to seek first God's kingdom in my marriage, I have to have this biblical understanding, this God-given revelation of what a marriage is. And if I'm going to have a biblical understanding of marriage, you know what I need? I need a biblical understanding of humanity, human beings, why we are here on this planet, and how marriage given by God plays a vital role in humanity's purpose that we are to fulfill for God. So in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that we all of humanity, we are created in the image of God. You are created in God's image. The Genesis account talks about God creating the heavens and the earth and the sky and the the, the dirt and the sea and the land and the animals and the trees and all the things that God creates. But when it comes to humanity, God stops And he says, we will create humanity in our image, in our likeness. And what this means is that you were designed specifically by God as a spiritual being. You are not just a material sack of bones that's 99% water. I don't know how that works, but anyway, right? Like, You're not just a material being on a rock flying through space. You also have an immaterial part of you, your soul and your spirit, that God breathed into Adam in Genesis chapter 2, the breath of life, and he became a living being, created in the image of God. And so as a spiritual being, you are meant to relate to God in a spiritual way. The Bible says that God is spirit. And so if we're going to have a relationship with God, we won't relate to God in a physical way. We'll relate to God spiritually. That's why we need Jesus to make us alive spiritually because a dead, if we're dead spiritually, we can't relate to God at all. 
But now that we are in Christ and now that we are God's people, we can relate to God as we were designed to in the Garden of Eden. And what God's purpose was, he tells us as the image bearers that, that Adam and Eve, he says in Genesis 1.26, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so God's design and purpose was that the earth would be filled with his image bearers who live in right relationship to him, showcasing his glory, his character, his nature to all of creation. Now, Adam and Eve were instructed to, to fill the earth with image bearers of God. That's a lot of multiplying that he instructed them to do, amen? There was just two of them. Their job was to fill the earth. And God's intention now as, as his image bearers is that we would display his glory through, through the image of God, that we carry with us something different than the, the animals or, or lower creation, that in right relationship to God, that we would display his nature, his character, his attributes, his glory to all of creation. Now, when, when God talks about marriage, as he brings them together in marriage, and as the Bible talks about marriage, it uses the language of a covenant, a covenant. How many of you have ever heard of a covenant? Now, the Bible, it uses that terminology. The, the same terminology that we see in the covenants is the same terminology that is applied to marriage. And so God's idea of marriage is that his image bearers would come together in a covenant, which is much different than what the world thinks about marriage. The world thinks about marriage simply as a social or legal contract not a covenant. And it's a very different concept than secular marriage. When the government or the state talks about marriage, it uses the ideology, the terminology, the philosophy of a contract, which is very different than a covenant. So what's the difference? Well, a contract is formed with the idea that it will one day be broken right? A, a contract assumes disillusion. That's why you have a contract, right? If everything was going to go the way it was supposed to go, you wouldn't need a contract, would you? Right? You only need a contract. What does the contract say? This is what will happen if you don't keep your end of the deal. That's a contract. And so a contract has at its core that one day this could potentially be broken. A covenant is not like that at all. A covenant has at its core the exact opposite, that this is for life, that this is for the rest of our lives, especially in marriage, we say until death are we separated, until death do we part. That's the difference, one of the differences between a covenant and a contract. A contract is selfish. 
I want to spell out on paper what's in this for me. And so two parties come together and they say, well, this is what I'm going to get and this is what you're going to get. A, conf- a contract is selfish. A covenant is service. It's these are the unconditional promises I am making to you whether or not you live up to your end of the bargain. It's not we come to the altar and say, you know, I'll, 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 I'll stay married to you as long as you, you know, have a really good job and provide for me. No, we say for rich or for poor. We don't come to the altar and say, well, if you stay healthy and stay beautiful and, and don't gain a few pounds. No, we say in sickness and in health. It's, it's, this is what I pledge to you, whether or not you even live up to your end of the bargain or not. A contract is selfish. A covenant is service. A contract is what's in it for me. The covenant says, how can I best serve you? Covenants are made before God. Contracts are made with the state. A marriage covenant is a solemn promise between the husband, the wife, and God. It is a three-person covenant. A contract, a marriage license, it is a secular contract between the parties and the state. And the passage in Malachi chapter 2 says that when God's people come together in a covenant marriage, that God blesses their union with a portion of his Holy Spirit, that, that he is actively involved in uniting God's people together in covenant marriage, that he is the glue that is putting you together. Amen. That's a powerful thing. That is a powerful idea and concept that God is joining these two people together by his spirit. And so that's why Jesus says, whom God has joined, let no man separate. A marriage covenant as defined by the Bible is a spiritual and supernatural union. It is spiritual and supernatural. Now, the world doesn't think about marriage in that way. How many of you know that? It's not the world's view of marriage at all. The world's view of marriage, for most people, they have the idea that they're making an agreement, the husband and the wife, that we're making an agreement together, that it's just lateral. If you go to the next slide, I've got a picture of what most people's concept of marriage is. It's, it's just between the, 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 the man and the wife. That most people think that, that marriage is it's just between me and, me and my spouse. It's just between us. We'll figure it out. We'll, 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 we'll make it work. We'll give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, well, we'll just cut the cords and we'll just move on. Most people today, if they even get married, enter into marriage with that view in mind. We'll give it a shot, and if it doesn't work out, we'll move on, 
just like I did the last three times. Now, this is not the view of the state. Did you know this? The view of the state is that the marriage contract is between you together, the principal parties, and the husband and wife are considered secondary parties. The the state, the government, it views itself as the principal party in the marriage contract. It is the one who defines the terms of the contract, how this is to operate, and the husband and the wife are viewed as secondary parties in the contract. It is a totally secular idea, and it is not biblical in the least sense of the word. In a marriage license, the husband and the wife are merely contractually joined as business partners. It's very similar to when you go and you form a, a, uh, a partnership. You go down to the business bureau and we wanna form a partnership together. And they say, okay, stamp here, stamp there, and this is what'll happen if you break the partnership. It's the exact same concept. It's not God's concept of marriage. But because the state, the government, dictates the terms of the contract, that means the state, in its eyes, has the right to dictate the terms of the contract and even to dissolve it. That's not God's view of marriage. God's view of marriage is a covenant. And so marriage should be different for God's people. Marriage is between God, the husband, and the wife. And this is a union that should not ever be broken. This is for life. This is until death do us part. And what we need to understand is that marriage for God's people should be different than marriage for the world. That we should not approach our marriages with the same flawed ideology of the world. The ideology of a contract. The ideology of, well, they're not, they're not carrying their weight. They're, they're not working as hard as I am at this. They're not serving me. They're not fulfilling me the way that I want to be fulfilled in this marriage. No, God's idea of a, of a covenant is that we come together before him and make solemn oaths to our partner and to him. And that in that type of union, he blesses it. And he joins the husband and the wife together with his spirit. I am not married today because I have a marriage license. I'm married today to Heather because I made a covenant before God, a solemn oath that I swore on the Bible, taking communion, a holy moment, holy matrimony, where my father and mother and Heather's parents and my grandmothers laid their hands upon us and ask God's blessing to come into our marriage. Now I have a piece of paper from the state that also says I'm married. That's for tax purposes. It doesn't make me married 
People got married before there was a state of Texas. Hello? People got married before there was the United States. Hello? It's not, it's not on the government to define marriage for me. It is not a, a man-made invention. True marriage, biblical marriage, a covenant marriage as defined by God is something totally different than what I go and do at the tax office to get, or at the, at the you know, city hall to get you know, a, a, a break on my taxes, which I'm all for. I'm, you know, as much money as you don't have to send the government, I'm all for it, okay? So this is God's design, and what we need to understand is that God's design is very good. God's design is very good. And, and next week, I'm gonna spend some more time diving deeper into this. I wanted to lay a foundation today. I'll, I'll be spending more time next week talking about male and female and how God created them different for his good design. It's a part of his design and, and his purpose and, and the role that a husband should play in marriage and the, the role that a wife should, should play in marriage and, and God's purpose for bringing them together. But, but what we need to see is, as the apostle Paul said, that speaking of marriage, Paul says, that he's, he's not just talking about the husband and the wife, he's talking about Christ and the church. Do you remember that in Ephesians chapter five? He says this mystery of the, the two becoming one, this very mysterious thing that happens that we don't understand how it works. I can't outline it for you on a spreadsheet of this is how two people become one in, in spirit. But, but what he is saying is that, uh, uh, that this is a picture, a portrayal of Christ and the church. And that God's purpose for marriage is that the world would be filled with godly offspring who bear the image of God, who show forth the glory of God everywhere we go, and that this, every marriage, would be a picture of God's eternal plan of redemption, Christ and the church. Think about that. Your marriage was designed by God to preach a sermon about Christ and the church. That is God's purpose and plan for marriage. It's not that marriage shows us a picture of Christ and the church. No, it's that it's that the Christ and the church helps us to understand marriage. Do you see the difference? It's not that we, 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 we understand things about marriage by looking at Christ and the church. No, it's that by looking at Christ and the church, we can understand some things about marriage. It's really about redemption. It's really about God's eternal purpose and that we are his image bearers. You see, the world has a different way of approaching marriage, a different system, a different philosophy, a different ideology. And it starts at a different place. You see, we start at the place where God is the creator and we are his creation created in his image. The world starts at a place where there is no God. There is no creator. We're just 
orangutans that hit the DNA lottery, basically. And so we don't have, we're not creating the image of God and we have no value, we have no purpose. So live like an animal. That's the philosophy of the world. Just live like an animal. Do whatever feels good. Pursue whatever is in your heart. It's totally different, totally different. So next week, we're gonna dive into a little bit more how these two philosophies, how these two ideologies play out in our worlds every single day and how they are even clashing in our worlds and our culture right now. So to seek first the kingdom of God, it means that I align my mind, my thoughts, my desires, my way of thinking with what God's word says. That what I value should be what the king values. What I think about things in this life should be the same thoughts of the king. And so if we're gonna have kingdom marriages as part of God's people, filled with his spirit, experiencing his blessing, righteousness, peace, joy in our homes, we've got to throw out the world's ideology of marriage. It is not a contract. You are not married as one of God's people simply because you have a piece of paper from Texas. You have made a solemn vow before a holy God to love and to serve and to sacrifice and to give and to express his life and his spirit to your partner and to, to put on display a picture of Christ and the church. You have to throw out the world's ideology of marriage, that it's a temporary thing, that I'll work, I'll, I'll, I'll get into it for a while if it works out for me, but if it doesn't, oh well. You've got to get out of the idea of a contract, that your, your marriage is held together by the, the government. What a joke. That's why so many marriages fall apart. They're either held together by something very material, you know, my, I like the way my wife looks and she makes me happy in the bedroom. And so as soon as th those things stop happening, well, my marriage falls apart. That, that's the way most people enter into marriage. How many of you know that those are some very shallow uh, things that will hold you together? At least I've found that. There has to be more. And so a covenant, we have to throw away the self-centered way of living. We must seek first the kingdom. We must seek God's revelation of covenant marriage and approach marriage from a kingdom perspective. So you might be here today and maybe you've been viewing your marriage as a contract. You need to repent. It means to change your mind. You need to get God's thinking in your mind about marriage. Maybe you're not married today, but one day you hope to be married. And you've been thinking about, oh, how wonderful it will be when I have a spouse and I don't have to do my laundry anymore or whatever stupid thing you've been thinking. Listen, marriage is not about you being served it's about you serving and sacrificing and laying down your own life. That's what a covenant marriage is. Maybe you've been viewing your spouse as someone whose job is to serve you versus you serving them. You need to repent. You need to get God's idea for marriage and what a covenant is and realize that, that you have made a vow before God 
and as you seek first his ways and his righteousness and to put into practice his principles of self-sacrificing servant love, oh man, there's so much righteousness and joy and peace and love that will flood your home and flood your life and flood your marriage. But as you dig in your heels and you just live life for you, man, what, what ends up happening is that you and your spouse are torn apart. As you pursue what you want and she pursue, pursues what she wants. And no, but when you both pursue serving each other, God brings you together in a beautiful way. He blesses it and he brings you together as one flesh by his spirit. And so if you're struggling in your marriage today, first understand this is not my idea, this is God's idea. It's, I'm not united to my spouse because we signed a contract. I'm united to my spouse, spouse by the true and the living God. And he has the power to bring us together. He has the power to keep us together. And that if I will stop seeking and serving what I want and looking for what I want and only thinking about myself, but if I will seek to serve others as Christ has laid down his life for me, you will have a strong marriage. You will see the life of God and the healing power of God come to your marriage and restoration in a way that you've never seen before. And you'll see God bring you together in a way that no one can separate.